Hello and welcome to This Week in Ringer Sports. I'm Liz Kelly bringing you the highlights from the Ringer Podcast Network. This is actually our last roundup of 2017, but we'll still have some new podcasts going up next week, like the Bill Simmons Podcast and the Ringer NFL Show. On the site, we are almost done with our year in review package, but this week we've added our favorite sports moments of the year, broken into two parts, one for each half of the year, and the best things about the 2017 NFL season so far, and tons more on TheRinger.com. Okay, first up is football. The Jimmy Garoppolo era in San Francisco has been as good as advertised, with the QB going 3-0 as a starter. On the Bill Simmons podcast, Bill is joined by the legendary New York sports radio host, Mike Francesa, and here they discuss the QB's early success. The moment he got the job, I picked them every week. And I'm with you. I I couldn't understand. This is a league that all we hear every single year since forever is you can't win unless you have a quarterback. And there's never more than eight to ten quarterbacks. And here was one that was available. And for whatever reason, either nobody believed or the Patriots didn't want to trade him within the AFC or they were holding on to him because they just didn't believe that 40-year-old Brady would be able to play. And once they saw he could play, what do you do at that point? Because you can't franchise Garoppolo and pay two quarterbacks $30 million. And he's I think just you hit there. on all of it, Bill. I think you hit on all of it. I think they waited to see if Tom was still Tom, and he is. He's probably going to win the MVP. Yeah. Uh, so he's still Tom. They couldn't pay two. The kid's going to get paid. They waited as long as they could, and then they sent them to a place where they could still get value. They got the picks they love, which are the – Low 30s are the Belichick's favorite because he thinks he's getting a one and paying for a two, so he yeah. loves those. So that's the perfect pick. So they'll they'll turn it into something good, but they gave up a special player. They knew it. Yeah. And this guy turned into magic. I mean, this guy, when he got back on a bus after his first game, the team gave him a standing ovation. I mean, right. they knew right away what they had. And this guy, to go to a team that's 1-10 and ten and win three straight games, is unbelievable. And if he ever wins this game this week, that will be an amazing achievement because this team matches up so well against his team. If he can be the difference in this game, I'll tell you something, you're looking at something really amazing at the end of the season. Uh, to turn it, uh, You don't usually see teams lose as much as they do and then win late. Reminds me a little bit of what Bill did his first year with Bledsoe. They went one, you know, they won, they went, they never won, and then they won their last four games, uh, including that classic game to end the season, and actually set things up for the second year. You know, winning those last four games of, of Bledsoe's first year. Very rare that teams like go one and ten and reel off a bunch of wins. You stole my thunder because I was going to mention that Pats team because it's one of the only times I can ever remember it happening where they were terrible. There was just a shred of hope because Bledsoe was, at that point, the prodigy still. Parcells was involved. He was bringing his dudes in. And when they won those last four, I think they finished the season 5-11, and but I felt like they were 12-4. and I was so excited. It was like, oh, my God, we have hope for the first time. It was unbelievable. And you're getting it. Right now, I bet you there's nothing but euphoria in San Francisco. They know they have. They know they've turned it around. They know they hit it big. They know they're going to be good. And you watch. So many people will pick them next year to go to the playoffs with an amazing turnaround. It's, it, it, it can happen that quickly. And the quarterback makes all the difference. 
Another team on a winning streak is the Houston Rockets, who have been on a blistering run aided by the return of Chris Paul and have positioned themselves as a frontrunner to challenge the Golden State Warriors in the Western Conference. On The Ringer NBA Show, Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon talk about what has made them so potent. Listen, it stands to reason that they are having this amazing season. They are this offensive juggernaut, but also their individual players are just littering um, almost every damn category. It's crazy what they have been able to do. Obviously, I was dead wrong about is it, you know, give it time, let's see if it's going to work. The ultimate test will obviously be the playoffs. But in terms of regular season and their success, I know you were super high on them and you had that thing pegged because they are <laughs> a friggin' juggernaut. You know, I, I think with Houston, right? Last night they trailed by eight with like 10 minutes to go. And then they went on a 37 to eight run and won the game by 21 points. And Houston, it seems like every game, you know, during the streak and maybe even like in some of their losses, it seems like they have a, a moment where they just, just rip the other team where they just go on an absolute tear offensively. And then they're in their half court defense with Capella anchoring with Ariza and Tucker on the wing, you know, and Paul up top, really setting the tone for that team where they just cannot be stopped where they're getting stops offensively. And then they can't be stopped offensively. The, the team just has such upside within games, within possessions that There again, it's like we said with Kobe, like we said with Kevin Durant, they collectively are always in games. They're always in a game, no matter how far they're down. And that makes them a threat, right? Um, That that gives them a chance to be the team like the Warriors in the playoffs. Doesn't mean they will, but they have a shot at it. And um, they are just an absolute joy to watch. And they're only going to get better, man. Chris Paul and James Harden still haven't played a lot of games together. Those guys are still going to learn how to play at a higher level together. When I was watching them last week against Charlotte, I started tweeting some things out because I'm watching the game. They had one point through about three minutes and 40 seconds, almost four minutes into the game. They had one point in the first quarter. And I'm watching, I'm like, wow, this is crazy, right? Like, when was the last time they went four minutes scoring a point, right? They ended the quarter with 38, 38. And I went and did the quick math, and that means for the last, whatever, eight minutes of the quarter, they scored 4.35 points per minute the rest of the way, like, which is just outrageous. Wow. So I tweet, I tweet this out, and I get in this discussion with uh, Duncan Smith, who covers the Detroit Pistons. And he he tweets me and he says something to the effect of like, we very rarely have seen anything like this offensively. We have never seen anything like this. I went and pulled it up. We really haven't. As of this morning, they have had through at least the first 29 games, the best offensive team in NBA history. Their offensive rating is 116.1 so far this year. Second, is the 86-87 Lakers. Third is the 16-17 Warriors. Fourth, 91-92 Bulls. Fifth, 87-88 Celtics. They're seriously the best offense ever through 29 games. 
<laughs> which is which is just absurd. Fifty two percent of their shot attempts are threes. So over half of their shot attempts are threes. They they are they're not only a dominant offense, but they are such a unique offense. They are so it's so different watching Houston compared to every other team. And it'll be interesting to see. I mean, obviously teams are shooting threes at a league high rate historically this season, with around thirty four percent of shots being three pointers. And I and I wonder at what point do we see a team kind of replicate exactly what Houston's doing in terms of their shot distribution or will Houston always be a light outlier or are they kind of the blueprint for how teams will build moving forward I'm not sure I mean it's hard to say like there's been teams historically that shot a lot lot more threes compared to the rest of um, the league like some early Sonics teams the Celtics in the early 2000s obviously the Suns um there's been other teams that have taken a lot of threes, but Houston is doing it at such an extreme level. I wonder when other teams start just following what they're doing, or is it because, you know, Houston has the ability to do it based on their personnel. But that, that's if you want to play that style, you're going to build that way. I'm interested to see. Okay, uh, this is one I'll tell you when they will. When they're in the finals or they win a title, that's when people will. Otherwise, there will be enough people out there that say, when you get to the highest level, like last year, where they had this serious refusal to take anything in the mid-range against San Antonio, and they ran up against a team that was willing to just totally run them off the line all the time, and that's what they dedicated themselves to, that unless they can do it and pull it off at the highest level by playing that way, people will not go all in to replicate. Going back to the subject of the NFL, the regular season is coming to a close these next few weeks, and the Jacksonville Jaguars and LA Rams have surprisingly positioned themselves for a potential deep playoff run. On the Ringer NFL show, Kevin Clark and Robert Mays discuss the two teams' Super Bowl potential. There's two games left in the season. How crazy is it that the Rams and Jags could meet in the Super Bowl? Is that realistic? I mean, it's crazy if you're looking at it through the, the eyes of September. But at this point, when you look at this team, would I give the Jaguars a longer chance? Yes, only because the Patriots are in their conference. And the Steelers. But why I mean, can't both those they? Teams I mean, really AJ good. Boye and... Yeah, AJ Boye and Jalen Ramsey are, at the very least, two of the top five cornerbacks in the NFL. There are so... I mean, Calais Campbell is Defensive Player of the Year candidate, full stop. Malik Jackson is really good. I mean, they, they just... I I don't know. I wrote, I was writing today about the Jaguars defense a little bit uh, on a story that I wrote for the ringer. And, you know, so many times we do the, is it the defensive line or the defensive secondary making the other look good? And in, in Jacksonville, it is objectively both propping each other up and yes. creating an elite defense. And that's when defenses become really fun. It's the most complete pass defense just from a top to bottom personnel standpoint that I can remember. I think that just in recent yes. years, I feel like that the, um, the, the Broncos defenses were right there. You know, I think you could probably make the case that they were better just because the linebackers were really good too. I mean, that's when Marshall was playing extremely well. And then, you know, obviously you had the rushers with, Miller and Ware and the guys inside were playing well too. And they had they have they have Malik Jackson on a on a cheap contract. Yeah, they have Malik Jackson inside as well. I, I just feel like the the pass rush package for Jacksonville when they get Campbell, Jackson, and Gakwe and Fowler yeah. on the field at the same time. Fowler's played fine. He's by far the worst player in that group. Like the fact that Ngakwe might be a better pass rusher than Clayus Campbell. He's not bad. And Clayus Campbell is 
the defensive player of the year candidate. I mean, it's unbelievable. And well, Ramsey and boy, or mostly Ramsey on Sunday, actually, they pretty much gave him uh, Hopkins and let him go. I mean, Hopkins had 80 yards and a touchdown. Yep. He also had four catches on 13 targets. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous how well these guys are playing. And then, you know, Barry Church gets the pick and very Barry Church is a good player. The fact that Gibson is just not even talked about, even though he's playing extremely well. I mean, that's how you know you have a really good unit top to bottom. Yeah, I mean, the Rams are not as complete as a, of a defense, but they win. If you were saying who is likely to get to the Super Bowl, I would pick them for two reasons. Number one, it's just the quarterback. And number two is is the conference. And, and those are the only two things that I think really differentiate them, except for the fact that the Rams don't have just an incredible shutdown secondary like the Jaguars do. But I mean, I'm just, I'm impressed as hell at both of these teams. And I I definitely definitely can see them either of them in the super bowl yeah absolutely i i think that the rams have a better chance just because the field is a little more wide open you know we'll dig into that a little bit here soon but i i think that overall you know their defensive recipe is different they don't have as complete of a team they also have wade phillips they also have aaron donald you know there's one game wrecker and just the best defensive coordinator in the nfl so it's just not this blanket suffocating you know 11 man unit but they do have the pieces yep. to just completely dominate a game, which they did on Sunday. And then you go to the other side of the ball and it's incredible. I, I just thank you so much, Sean McVay, for breathing life back into Todd Gurley. Like of everything else you've done, I think that is the most beautiful. And I will hand you your coach of the year award in person. I mean, there's no other person you can give it to at this point. This is one of the greatest turnarounds in the history of the, of the league, let alone for this season. Wait, offense, you know, offensively it is. Yes, it's the greatest turnaround of all game. time. Yes. The big the, the biggest turnaround in the history of football, just anecdotally, I'm not saying I buried Todd Gurley, but when you see a guy like Todd Gurley struggle in the way he did, I think he had under four yards per carry last year. I just didn't expect him to ever be Todd freaking Gurley again, because I just, you know, when running backs start to slow, they typically don't, don't pick it back up, especially when he's that athletic as rookie year and what they've been able to do. It just goes back to how harmful. And I, I, you know, I don't mean that in a, in any way, except realistically, quite frankly, how harmful Jeff Fisher was to the league. There were yeah. three guys on his roster in the summer of 2016 who will be starting playoff games at quarterback this year and all of them looked bad under him. You have to take away the Jeff Fishers of the, of, of the league out of there. And beyond that, I mean, I, I just, Sean McVay is awesome. Full stop. I, I just love him. I love him. What they've done is just, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's literally unbelievable. And obviously we talk about the fact that there's the personnel has changed everything else, but it's just impossible to overstate the job that he's done and where it stands in the history of the league. Yep. I mean, it's just, this is something monumental that we've been able to watch. We're also getting close to the college football playoff semifinal matchups. They're about a week away. And on Ringer University, Ben Glixman and Roger Sherman break down the Rose Bowl matchup between number two, Oklahoma, and number three, Georgia. The biggest matchup you might say in this game is like Oklahoma's offense versus Georgia's defense, which is boring. But But we are going to talk about that really, (laughs) Really, it's going to be like whether Baker Mayfield's like ego and confidence and uh, ability to get upset at things can overtake 
like one of the best defenses in the country. Yeah, well, that's what he did against uh, Ohio State. That's what he did against TCU. When Baker Mayfield gets angry, he just becomes in sort of like a an all encompassing force. He grows five hundred feet. Fire spits out of his uh, his headband. Look, if you if you would have watched college football this year, you know everything that Roger is saying is not hyperbole, but actually factually correct. It's good stuff. Um, so let's actually get get into it, though. So you're excited about the stylistic clash. I'm pumped just to see if Baker can take that that next step towards Baker's becoming, bake. yeah, towards uh, towards baking uh, Georgia in this game. But I figure it does make sense for us to sort of go one side of the ball to the other. See, really getting down into the nitty gritty of this, who really has the edge? So let's start with Oklahoma. We're talking about Baker Mayfield. What do you think is the real key when Oklahoma has the ball, sort of in determining whether the Sooners are going to be successful or not? So, I mean, again, it's just an awesome stylistic matchup because you've got Oklahoma, definitely the best passing game in the country. Number one in passing S&P Plus. Mm-hmm. Georgia, possibly the best passing defense in the country. They're, they're number two in yards per game allowed. They're allowing 158 yards per game. And number two in the nation in yards per attempt, just 5.6 yards per attempt. So they're, they, 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 they shut down every passing game they've really faced. But... Then again, they they are in the SEC. They haven't really played a team that throws the ball this much. Really, their their only game against a team in the top fifty of yards per game uh, of passing yards per game was against Missouri. Mm-hmm. And and Drew Locke actually looked pretty good in that game for Missouri. He he threw for two hundred fifty yards and four touchdowns on just twenty three attempts. Um, so. You got to wonder whether Georgia's passing defense has been so good because it's so you know great and they they have all of the things you need to be a great passing defense, or whether it's because they haven't been playing the type of team that throws the ball like Oklahoma does. You know, you you talk about all the exceptional defenders on Georgia's defense like Roquan Smith, but Oklahoma is going to try and make it so that no one player can stop them. They're going to, you know, they have a bunch of good receivers. They have the best tight end in college football and Mark Andrews. Uh, they throw to their running backs. They're they've got everything going all across the field on offense and I wonder if Georgia can stop them. Genuinely curious. Yeah, no, I'm I'm fascinated by the same thing. Georgia's pass defense is really really interesting to me for the same reason that you said. They rank at the top of every category, but they haven't played that many good quarterback so I actually went through I like doing this I actually went through and wrote down every quarterback that they've played so far so I'm just gonna r- rattle these off real quick for you the, the best one is probably Locke or Stidham I think those are really so so let me just get into it yeah here. sure so, Appalachian State's Taylor Lamb Notre Dame's Brandon Wimbush Samford's Devlin Hodges Mississippi State's Nick Fitzgerald Tennessee's Quentin Dormady Vanderbilt's Kyle Shermer Missouri's Drew Locke Florida's Felipe Franks, <laughs> South Carolina's Jake Bentley, Florida's <laughs> offense, just the mention of it will make Roger laugh, Auburn's Jared Stidham, Kentucky's Steven Johnson, and Georgia Tech, which doesn't pass the ball, but Taquan Marshall. Um, and that's it. And then Stidham again in the, in the SEC championship game. I went through that. I would say that they've played four good college QBs, Wimbush, Nick Fitzgerald, Stidham, and Drew Locke, but only two of those are really good passing quarterbacks. Wimbush is primarily a runner, and Fitzgerald is primarily a runner. But I think Notre Dame did throw the ball like a lot in that game, though, right? 
I would need to see the stats. I haven't had a chance to dig fully, fully back into that one. But against Locke and Stidham, Locke threw four touchdowns, like you mentioned. Stidham, the first game they played, threw for three touchdowns and no picks. And the other thing that these guys had in common is they hit on a lot of big plays. Locke threw two different 63-yard touchdowns in that game against Georgia. Missouri's defense is not not super impressive so Georgia rolled past them despite the fact that Locke threw for four touchdowns uh Stidham all three of his touchdown passes in the game that Auburn beat Georgia all went for longer than 30 yards so Georgia against these upper tier quarterbacks has been susceptible to the big play and like you said I am really really curious to see now they're going against a quarterback who's better at making big plays than anybody else in the nation and it's yeah it's just a fascinating matchup now switching over to soccer, we've got Ringer FC this week, where Ryan O'Hanlon, Micah Peters, and Donnie Kwok talk to former professional goalkeeper David Priest about the future of goalkeeping. In the NBA, I don't know if you follow it at all, big men centers have started shooting three-pointers um, to make themselves more useful. They used to sort of just rebound and play near the hoop, but now they started shooting threes. And every sort of kid that plays basketball who's talented and is over seven feet, over six, six, eight, they now grow up shooting threes in a way that they never would have done that 15 years ago. Do you see a kind of a similar shift happening with keepers where like your 12 year old keeper is not, not only just, you know, working on his reactions and his positioning and his claiming of crosses, but also like working on his distribution. Do you think this is a thing we're going to sort of see take over the goalkeeping position as we go forward? Yeah, I think, like I said at the start, it's it's taken far too long, much far longer than I ever thought, for keepers to adapt to the way they have. You see them now. I mean, Manuel Neuer is probably the... He certainly wasn't the first goalkeeper to play like this. There's been... History's littered with goalkeepers uh, who, who, can, who are comfortable with the ball, who used to be outfield players. But the way that goalkeeping is coached now, you find a lot of sessions now... Um, Handling is, has become a smaller percentage of that. Um, shot stopping has become a, a smaller percentage of that. And it is to do with, your, um, you know, play with your, you've got to play with your feet a hell of a lot more. And I think certainly when I, I played for, uh, for four years in Denmark, and as soon as I went over there, I was, uh, I was introduced to all of the uh, passing drills, all of the keep ball uh, uh, drills that, were, that we did. Um, all the possession drills and it, it helped me a hell of a lot it, just because it's just through repetition you're doing it all the time and I think it's now that the keepers who are coming through now that they've they've had that from a young age and they're more comfortable with the ball and, and as much as it is about technique and, and passing and, and range of passing it's about mentality as well most goalkeepers of any level if you give them a ball in the training pitch they will more or less be able to find passes like that but it's when you're under pressure and you've got the, the bravery and the, and the right mentality to be able to do that and stay calm and pick these passes out under pressure. That's probably what, more than anything, more than any of his, his skills or his, his talent, it's, it's down to his mentality the way that he is. Right, because, I mean, like, you, you, from that vantage point, you have the entire game in front of you, but you're also the last line of defense. Yeah. 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 Well, and, yeah, well it's, it's, I mean, and a lot of people, when they're under pressure, your head goes down, you focus on the ball, you know the best players play with their head up, and they can see everything. And it, 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 it's a, maybe it's a bit of a cliche saying that the, the 
time slows down for them because they, they move the ball, manipulate the ball uh, to places where it takes further for the opposition to come and close you down and gives you a little bit more time But and you keep your head up and you, you can see those options. So it's, it is it is about him being more like a, a, an, an extra outfield player. And he, he, said he, I mean, he used to play left back. I mean, it's, it's not a... It's not an unusual thing for goalkeepers to start as outfield uh, outfield players at all, um, but it certainly gives them an advantage. We're ending this week's roundup on a very festive note before we wrap up for the holidays in a Christmas-themed clip from Against All Odds. In our last segment, Cousin Sal and the Degenerate Trifecta debate a fictional gambling prop, including the legendary Mariah Carey Christmas jingle. Here's one. This will this will put you in the in the holiday spirit. Combined points scored in every bowl game from now until the end versus the number of times you will hear Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas between now and 26th of December. Mariah, minus three and a half. Harry, you know this song by heart. You took a picture of it on the radio uh, on here and you, and you sent it to us. What are you saying? You going with Mariah? Listen, I know this is sort of quite the facetious type of wager going on here at Mariah minus three and a half. But, uh, and I, what is it going to be? I think it's like seven bowl games. And if you go 50 points a game, uh, you know, it's like 350 times. No, no, no. It's I'm not, not seven. Mariah minus the three. It's not eight. seven. It's every bowl game. There's probably 30 left, right? Every bowl game. Okay. Well, yeah. so I'll still take the over. I'll take, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll still take Mariah minus the three and a half. Yeah. Because to be honest, I love that song. I love the song. I play it everywhere. When I, it's on like nine different serious radio stations currently. When it's on tape, I just crank up the, I crank up the volume. I Turn put down up, the windows. Harry. I said to start. I'm, I just, I just, I just, cra- just go crazy for the time. Lately, also, not exaggerating, not lying. When I go to the gym and I'm in the steam room, swe- sweating out uh, what I can do to try to lose weight, and nobody's in there. Oh, I crank it in there and I sing to it in the steam room by myself. What do you mean? At, at, at the gym? Mariah minus three and a half all day long. At the gym you crank this? At the gym I crank it in the steam room when nobody's in there. Uh, uh, do you have an iPod or something? Or you just, uh, they they have, yeah. oh, okay. All right, interesting. On my phone I just crank the music, it's fine. Are you worried someone else is going to come in there? Is your iPod still working, Harry? That's a lot of heat there. <laughs> it's okay. It's, uh, it's all right. It's, it's uh if it, if it breaks, I'll get Ken to buy me a new one. Shade, I need to remind you, you wagered on this man in, a ten, in an athletic event. All right. I know. He's singing Sticker Mariah Carey. will let you know. <laughs> singing Mariah Carey to himself. All right, Parlay Kid, what do you say, Mariah or point score in the bowl games? Now, this, this, uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, I had to really do the math. Of, we have 33 bowl games left, uh, approximately uh, 1,860 <laughs> points. Are going to be scored in these bowl games, uh, so. But I think it depends on what we talk about. Like you know, hearing this song. I think I hear this song in my head like all day long at this time of the year. That counts, yeah. and it just kind of it's on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. The only Christmas song I'll really listen to from start to finish is "The Little Drummer Boy" by Bing Crosby. Mm. That's my personal favorite. Yeah. Uh, this one, if I do hear it, I'm turning it off. But it does come up. All the time. And Sal, you know, Mariah Carey went to our rival high school. Oh, that's you right. That Harbor Fields High School didn't here on your, Long Island. Didn't your dad right. teach her? I mean, there were rumors that I used to, yeah, there were rumors I used to date her. And that was totally false. Remember totally that. False. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You forget about that. But she was, uh, you know, she went to our rival high school here. Right. But I, so I think, 
Well, this is a tough one, Sal, because really we do hear this song hundreds and hundreds of times. But I'm going to go with the real action here. There's going to just be too many points scored in these bowl games. <laughs> these bowl games are going over and over and over from here on out. Take the bowl games. More points. All right. I think you, that, I think you just issued a challenge to uh, your girlfriend, Mariah. Our brother, Bri, do you agree yeah. with the parlay kid? We have it split so far. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I guess I agree with them, but I, you know, I'm not going out of my way to listen to this. I, I'm probably Scrooge around here. I avoid Christmas songs at all costs. If it comes in on the radio, even if I'm with my daughters, like I'll just shut the music off. I'll, I'll go to like a sports station. I, mm-hmm. I know I'm so bad, but it, even so, even when I do that, you can't escape it. It's on commercials. It's just everywhere. I feel like I'm walking in the city and I hear this music. So, I mean, there is still a good chance I could hear this 350 times a day over the next uh, six days, but uh, I'll I'll go with the uh, slight under on this one. But like Harry was saying before, we know he's listening and working working out to this song every day. That's not a lie. That is not a lie. It actually is very, yeah, that's, that's, Totally, hundred percent true, listen, and it's hundred percent, hundred percent embarrassing. But it's it's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, like a true degenerate gambler, the song says, "All I want for Christmas is W." <laughs> wow. Wow. Right. Oh, Harry, Harry, you're out. That's a big, that was a good one, Harry. That was a good one. Yeah. I don't know. I, in Harry's defense, you try going to a public sauna and not hearing this song. It just that's it just doesn't happen. No, no. Parley Kid, I'm with you. More Bing Crosby, more Nat King Cole, uh uh Springsteen, Santa yeah. Claus is coming to town. I'll even take a little wham now and then. I don't care. How about uh do they know it's Christmas time? Uh, you know, tonight, thank God, it's them instead of you who was stuck with the family singing along with Mariah Carey for the last 15 days. She's holding a gun to every program director's head. I'm taking Mariah. 1,863 and a half spins that you'll hear between now and December 26th. Okay, that is the roundup for this week and for the year. You can find the full-length versions of all these podcasts and, of course, subscribe at theringer.com slash podcasts. Thank you all for listening to this and all of our other content, and I'll be back the first week of January.